Welcome to Women on the Line, a community radio national feminist current affairs program featuring the voices of women and gender non-conforming people produced at 3CR Community Radio in Melbourne and broadcast on the Community Radio Network. I'm Emma Hart. People need to inform themselves and after they inform themselves, they need to make a decision. Should I continue sitting here very comfortable doing nothing or should I do what I can with my time? you know, and my possibilities. And I think that's the idea of IMAR, to open people's eyes, to provide information, not for you to feel sorry for us, not for you to feel pity for those ones who are less lucky than we are here in Australia. It's for you to understand that there is something you can do, that you can be part of this struggle, that we can help our communities to have a better life. Women on the Line acknowledges that this program is produced and presented on the land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations and that their sovereignty was never ceded. We acknowledge their elders past, present and becoming, as well as the traditional owners of the land on which you're hearing us from. This week on the program, we focus on Blockade IMARC, an online conference and action series focused on resisting extractive industries, colonialism and capitalism. IMARC stands for the International Mining and Resources Conference, and listeners may remember last year's significant protests against the conference in Melbourne. Today we'll hear extracts from the panel Extractivism 101 and Latin American Perspectives Part 1, featuring speakers Dandara from MST, the Landless Workers Movement in Brazil, and Danny from a grassroots movement against neoliberal extractivism in Chile. First, we speak with Marisol Salinas. Mapuche Indigenous woman and activist. My name is Marisol Salinas. Um, I am a Mapuche Indigenous woman who lives in Melbourne or Nan, so called Australia, and an activist who defends uh, Indigenous people's rights in Nan and what's happening in Oklahoma and also here in Australia. Thanks for joining us on the program today, Marisol. You've been speaking and organising at the Blockade IMARC conference. Can you speak about what Blockade IMARC is and why it's important? So Blockade IMARC is, um, you know, there are actions. In this case, we are having a conference online due to COVID-19, but the idea is to organise and organise actions outside the venue that normally the mining companies you know, when they have the annual international meeting here in Melbourne, Australia. It's not just the mining companies, also all those companies who benefit from mining, you know, for example, people who make the uniform, the, the, you know, the food, you know, anything, anything that you can imagine that will help, you know, this industry. So they all meet here in Australia to discuss future projects and how to support those future projects. When we talk about future projects, these are countries where there is already exploration and they're looking where to open another mine. So it's, that's why it's so important because mining, um, extractivism in general, but mining um, is this, you know, is this, is destructive. Is, um, there is no justification at all that people can say that it's helping, you know, I, I know that they always talk about work, you know, jobs, every time a mining a company moving to 
and a specific area. They talk about how many jobs the families who live in the area will have, but that's not true. You know, the mining company will benefit just the owner of the company and will destroy the, you know, the area, living area around them. They pollute the rivers, you know, the underground water. So displaced communities plunder peasants on indigenous land. And in Latin America, they come also with paramilitaries or militaries, you know, that they come in from the state to protect these multinational corporations. So also killings, you know, of indigenous leaders or peasants or grassroots movement leaders, they get killed also in this process. So really mining companies don't bring nothing positive, nothing positive at all, except for, again, for the owners of the company and the shareholders who normally uh, some of them probably don't have no idea, you know, how much blood uh, uh, the money the, the money they get received, you know, has uh, blood from normally from Latin America or Asia, you know, or African continent. So also mining brings poverty because, as I said, it doesn't benefit really the people who are living there. So yeah, so that's why we organize this blockade Arnak because we believe that it's important to denounce, you know, and that there is other options beyond mining. So we need to protect the land. That's the idea, protect the water, because mining also, you know, takes the water that is a vital resource from the people who live in the area where the mining companies open. Normally a state, you know, or government give mining companies free will to use as much water as they need. But the people who live in the area, they have to pay for the water. And in some communities, for example, in Chile, you know, there is no water, drinkable water. So there is trucks coming every day from other parts of the country to provide water to these, um, you know, the people who live in the area. Again, not for free. People have to pay for the water. So, yes, we need to protect our environment. We need to defend life. That's why we organize and we decide that we cannot just sit here and see how they meet once a year in this fabulous place and talk about countries like they have in the people who live in those countries has no value at all. You know, they make decisions without consulting uh, indigenous Africans, Afro, you know, Latinos who, who live in those areas. It's a process that is uh, incredible, you know, if you investigate, you know, how dodgy is all the process. This is Marisol speaking at Blockade IMARC. And of course, we are going to start with Extractivism 101 in Latin America, Perspectives uh, on Extractivism. Um, we have today two speakers. Uh, one speaker is from Brazil, from the Landless Movement of Brazil. And we have also a speaker from the grassroots movements from Chile. Uh, I'm gonna, yeah, they are already in the audience, so I'm gonna introduce them. But before, just to mention a little bit what Anissa, you know, was saying, uh, I think it's a good opportunity, you know, to start from now organizing, thinking what are we gonna do next year. I think online uh, um, conferences are good, but face to face, I think is more effective and is what we need because extractivism, it has a history or colonial history. 
you know, invasion, uh, destruction, damage to the environment, displacement of indigenous communities, uh, Afro communities, peasants, you know, the plunder of our land in this case as Mapuche indigenous woman, you know, and the, this threatened our lives, you know, the livelihood of indigenous peoples and everyone who respect and live in the land. So we need to, yeah, do something effective. Women on the line. In the panel Extractivism 101, Latin American Perspectives, part one, you, you mention as part of your introduction that extractivism is intrinsically linked to colonization. I mean, could you speak about this more in the context of Chile, especially around Mapuche struggles for indigenous land? Yes, for example, we start, you know, losing our land, for example. Um, we had a treaty with the Spanish crown after so many years of, you know, fighting between the Spanish crown and the Mapuche indigenous people. We managed to get an agreement. And in that agreement, <laughs> the Spanish crown recognized Mapuche indigenous land. So, and in those days, they decide that the Bio Bio River will be the border, the limit between the Crown, you know, and the Mapuche indigenous land. So we were able to, you know, continue, you know, living, no matter if it's, everything was part of our land, you know, but we agreed that from there to the mountains will be Mapuche land from there to the future. But it was the Chilean people, you know, the people, who, the descendants of the Spanish, you know, Whips and Spanish, who invade for the second time our land. And with that invasion, you know, the intention was, you know, to eradicate, uh, not to kill all of us, but to to transform indigenous into Chilean, or criollos, as they call it in, in those days, or mestizos, you know, because mixed people, yes? Yeah? So that, that idea of to take someone's all the rights, you know, to not to allow indigenous people to speak the language, not to allow indigenous people to, you know, live according to your culture, according to your beliefs. They came with the church. You know, the church was a very strong instrument for this second invasion where they were making us feel that it was so bad to believe in the goddess that we had and not to believe in the Western God, you know, that we will all go to, you know, to hell. So things like that, you know, it's a, it's, it's a very similar process that happens everywhere around the world where the Spanish crown, the Portuguese, the English, yeah, they, and the French, you know, they came in around the world invading, you know, other people's lives. For example, my name, yeah, my name is Marisol. That's in a Spanish name, of course, because that's also part of the colonialism. You know, our names were changed because according to them, they didn't sound Spanish enough, not good enough for them. They couldn't understand them. So, you know, and so force, some, some generations were forced to change their names. <clears throat> so, and from there, as I said, if they took all your rights, as people who live in that land that belongs to everyone because that, that was the idea of Mapuche indigenous people and I'm sure all the indigenous communities. That was the land where we were lucky to live there, but it didn't belong to me, it didn't belong to my community or other communities. Uh, I am a Gujishe, but we have the Wenches, we have other 
tribes inside the Mapuche uh, people, but none of those lands, you know, were mine or for my ancestors. It was Mapuche land, belongs to everyone. So yeah, so it's, they try and they did succeed, they succeed in some areas because as I said, the church did a good job. We have some communities who were totally transformed, you know, that today you, you cannot talk to them without them talking about the Western God as their God. And from there, you know, all the problems, you know, that come when you lost your identity or you don't know where you belong. So we have, not every Mapuche, we are in the same path fighting for our land or for our sovereignty or self-determination. There is a few brothers and sisters who they need to go through a process where they need to find themselves again. You know, they need to stop being colonized. They need to stand up and say, okay, I'm a Kuche. I speak Makudungu. These are my goddess. I believe this and this and that. You know, so it's, a, it's so important, you know, to stand up against colonialism. But yes, it's, um, a mining, believe me, forestry, hydroelectric companies are responsible because after the church, after the military, now we have these multinational corporations who also come with the church. You know, in every little town around, you know, Mapuche land, you have a church. You know, from to the end of the south, you know, where I come from, that is in a small island that we call Chiloé. In Chiloé, every two kilometers you drive, you have a church from both sides, to the right, to the left, you know. It's incredible, you know, how they try, you know, and they succeed, as I said, in some areas. But, um, but fortunately for us, and unfortunately for them, there were some communities who decide not to, you know, decide that to stand up for the rights and to fight for self-determination. And we're still in that process. You know, we're still fighting multinational corporations and trying to push them out of our land. But it's very difficult when you have a, a, a state, you know, and the five rich families, if we talk about Chile, the five rich families who manage the country, who are Spanish descendants, you know, against you too, it's very difficult when they have the law, the media in their favor. It's very difficult. But, yeah, we are still fighting um, against this extractivism, you know, multinational corporations in general. Women on the Line. On community radio around Australia, you're listening to Women on the Line. We're bringing you coverage of Blockade IMARC, an online conference focused on resisting extractive industries, colonialism and capitalism. You just heard Marisol Salinas discussing the links between colonialism and extractivism. Next, we will hear Marisol introduce panel speakers from Blockade IMARC. I'm now going to uh, invite our first speaker. She is from Brazil. Um, her name is Dandara. Dandara is a member of the Landless uh, Workers Movement, MST, from Brazil. Uh, she's currently working in the MST state office in the Minas Gerais. Uh, Minas Gerais is um, one of the Brazilian states that are most affected by the mining industry. 
in the last five years, um, uh, two tailings dams belonging to Vale, uh, a global mining company, uh, collapsed. I think we all saw in the news, you know, when this was happening and how destroyed thousands of lives, also homes, jobs, and, you know, the toxic, the, uh, how toxic is this for the environment? And um, also the damage to the environment. And I will invite Dandara to continue with, you know, uh, talking to us and letting us know uh, what else is happening in Brazil. Welcome, Dandara. So good night, everybody. It's actually night here. Uh, before entering the theme that interests us tonight, the theme of the mining industry, I would like to give a little bit of background on MST, this movement of which I am a member, just so uh, you know why we are so interested in this in these theme of mining and environmental matters uh, in general. So MST, we are a rural movement. We are a movement by uh, created by land workers, uh, campesinos, uh, who are landless. So we are we were created as a nation, national movement in 1984. And in those 36 years, we have been fighting since day one for three main goals. The first one is the most obvious, considering we are a landless workers movement, which is land. For Brazil was built as a nation on a deeply unequal distribution of land, of land resources in such a big country which has created this gigantic mass of landless workers, landless people. We have around uh, 120,000 people, landless people, living in MST's uh, encampments, the territories that MST organizes, still fighting for the right to, to work their lands. But... Besides that, we have hundreds and thousands of landless people who are still living in the cities, not organized, in big, unregulated, oftentimes unsanitary, unsafe neighborhoods uh, that have been expelled from their, their land. And meanwhile, we have in Brazil, I have some uh, 2016 data that says uh, 0.95% of landowners control 45% of Brazilian land. So it's deeply unequal and land is our first main goal as a movement. But also it takes us to the second goal. We have agrarian reform because much more than the land itself, we land workers need uh, the means to live and thrive and grow healthy food and plentiful food on our fields. So we need education, healthcare, structure such as roads, electricity, housing, clean water, 
we need access to information. We need the means to, to preserve our way of life, our culture. We need to have, in short, we, we need to have our rights respected because all of those things are actually uh, granted by our constitution. So MST and other land workers movements from Brazil uh, have come to, to, to this understanding that this agrarian reform under such, uh, with such dimension, with such design will not happen under this barbaric stage of capitalism. So we have decided to create our own popular agrarian reform in our territories. That was Dandara from MST, the Landless Workers Movement in Brazil, speaking at online conference Blockade IMARC. Next, we'll hear activist Marisol Salinas introduce the next speaker, Danny. And I would like to introduce uh, Danny. Danny is uh, an activist uh, from a grassroots movement from Chile, fighting neoliberal extractivism also. First, I would like to start by offering a land acknowledgement. I am currently located in Picun Mapu, that is the northern part of unceded Mapuche land, and I'm trying to make this quick, but uh, by offering this land acknowledgement, I hope to reaffirm my commitment and the commitment of my organization to working always in solidarity with uh, the Mapuche liberation struggle and all other indigenous struggles located in this territory. Um, so I guess to begin, I think there's a lot of similarities in this territory with what Dandara was describing in Brazil. Um, there are definitely different places where extractivism is lived in different ways. I know we're focusing primarily on mining, but um, extractivism is, is felt in a lot of different industries. Um, in Chile, you can basically split this up in a north-south dynamic. In the north, the primary extractivist industry is mining, but in the south, the primary extractivist industry is forestry. And then throughout the country, you will also have different electric projects, some of which are actually hydroelectric projects, so they get to be billed as like green renewable energy that ends up polluting rivers and uh, native land. Um, so let me back up a little bit. I don't want to get too deep into the history or anything, but I think it is important to mention that Chile uh, has a long history of extractivism, basically since it became settled as a colony ruled by the Spanish crown and then eventually ruled by the Chilean state. The land and its people have been the target of exploitation uh, in the name of capitalism, essentially, primarily exploited by foreign capital, but they always have their really helpful national, national capitalist class ready uh, to help them out exploiting the land and the people. So um, it's important for me to mention that the history of capitalism, colonialism, and extractivism are inseparable from each other. You can't really talk about one without talking about the other. Um, neoliberalism is just one sort of facet of capitalism, but um, that doesn't mean that before neoliberalism, we didn't have all this going on as well. In fact, one of the um, earliest types of mining that was taking place in this territory was saltpeter mining, uh, which goes back a couple centuries before, um, before the implantation of neoliberalism in the territory. So we're talking about something that has quite a bit of history because of, uh, because of the way that Chile is a colonial state and has been at the mercy of uh, Yankee imperialism basically since uh, its separation from the Spanish crown. You know, you get rid of the old master, you get a new master. Um, so to sort of 
land this on a couple more concrete examples. Um, in the north of the country, in a city called Antofagasta, which is one of the bigger cities, it's one of the biggest cities in, in, the, in the north of the country, and there's a lot of mining activity. Most mining happens in that area, maybe not in the city, but in the areas around it. And earlier this year, it was found that at least 9% of the population, they tested blood and urine, uh, at least 9% of the population had elevated levels of arsenic in their blood, uh, which for adults was around 8% and for minors was 12%. So it was much higher in children. And this is just a really concrete way that we can see that this is something that's affecting people right now in a very, very urgent way, because you don't really live a normal life if you have elevated levels of arsenic in your blood. That is heavy metal poisoning. Um, and this sort of same pattern is repeated in places where it's not necessarily the mining industry that's responsible for the pollution. There have become a few emblematic locations of um, what extractivism does to the land and to the people, uh, which we have started to call sacrifice zones or zonas de sacrificio. Um, and a few of them, I'll, I'll just be naming them and telling you a little bit about it. One of them is the Quintero-Puchuncaví conjunction, uh, which is near to Santiago, um, which is where I am. Um, and this is a beach town, or actually it's two different municipalities that are sort of uh, very close to each other and share a lot of like industry, um, where in the past, I would say 20 or 30 years, if I'm remembering correctly, there have been 20 different industrial facilities that have been implanted in that place. And the consequence of that is that people have higher rates of cancer, have higher rates of asthma and other respiratory diseases. Um, and, you know, it's pretty common to walk along the beach and see a dead bird or smell air that smells sulfuric because the pollution is, is in the soil, it is in the air, it is inescapable. And that's why those places tend to be called sacrifice zones, because they've essentially been sacrificed, both the land, the people, the animal, anything living there uh, has already been sacrificed uh, to the industry. Uh, in the case of Quinteros and Puchuncaví, it's primarily um, energy generation industry, um, so different kinds of energy production. Um, but the same is true, for example, where other industries are present, a different sacrifice zone that we will often talk about here is Petorca, which is a town um, a little bit to the south of here, where avocado production is very important. Um, and this leads to drought for the city, um, for the town. In Petorca, um, water has to be hauled in with trucks, even though it's normally a place where water should be abundant, but all that water gets re redirected into avocado production, which is one of our major exports. So it's not going to stop happening unless we make it stop happening. Um, and all of these areas tend to have sort of a similar problem that Dandara was describing, where it generates economic dependency um, in the actual place where this is happening. So, for example, in Quinteros and Puchuncaví, this intersects in a really interesting way with gender, because it ends up happening that in Quinteros and Puchuncaví, most men are employed in the industries that generate the pollution. So most groups organizing against those industries tend to be women because they're not employed by those places because they have to take care of their kids and see their kids get sick and see their families dying. While the men can't really do much because they have to work and they have to bring home a paycheck and they have to keep doing this and they can't organize against their employer. Um, and so you generate kind of like this dependency where you need to push them out because if you don't 
that is a direct threat to your survival, but you also can't because that is a direct threat to you being able to put bread on the table. Um, and in a slightly sort of almost more nefarious way, in the North where mining is more prevalent, you will sometimes see a mining company offer to pay for a miner's child's studies in a mining related field so that then they can hire the child in the future like as a professional so that then you end up with these families with generations of miners that have worked at the same company because that company is continuously exploiting the same place but also making sure that you and your family and the town is economically dependent on the survival of the industry. You were just listening to Danny, an activist from a grassroots movement in Chile fighting neoliberal extractivism, speaking at Blockade iMark. For more information and recordings from the conference, visit blockadeimark.com, that's I-M-A-R-C, or search Blockade iMark on Facebook. And that's all for Women on the Line today. Women on the Line is a community radio national feminist current affairs program featuring the voices of women and gender non-conforming people. This program was produced in Nam, Melbourne, with the amazing support of 3CR staff. A big thank you to them. Women on the Line is broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network, and we greatly appreciate financial support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. We welcome your comments or thoughts on today's show, so send us an email to womenonthelion at gmail.com or phone 3CR on 03 9419 If you'd like more information about today's program or to listen to the show again, you can find what you need on the Women on the Line website, 3cr.org.au forward slash womenonthelion. The theme music for Women on the Line is by Ripley Kavara. I'm Emma Hart. Hope you can tune in again next time.